Welcome to the Physician Associate Podcast. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Physician Associate Podcast. My name is James. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Pavan Kamarandev, who is a GP trainer and primary care cancer lead for East Midlands Cancer Alliance. Welcome to the show, Pavan. Thank you. Delighted to be here and delighted to be working even more with Physician Associate. Thanks for coming on the show. I was lucky enough to catch the lecture that you gave at last year's National Physician Associate Conference. And I thought it'd be great to get you on the podcast as well to expand further on what you were talking about. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself first and introduce yourself? So I work in a semi-rural practice in northwest Leicestershire within the Midlands, and I've been there for 25 years. And as a GP, I've had a particular interest in cancer going back to when I was a trainee. And at the moment, I'm on a sabbatical aiming to develop cancer training academy approaches for all the clinicians that work within primary care. So that's, of course, including physician associates, GPs, GP trainees, nurse practitioners, and so on. So my passion lies there within the detection of cancer, in improving cancer screening uptake, and also in skilling up us ourselves as professionals in terms of giving advice to patients on how to reduce their cancer risk. And so that took me a little bit further, and I reached out to the faculty of physician associates and started to have a discussion with them about how the important understandings of cancer could be included within the curriculum, and also applied during CPD sessions such as the conference. And that is what led to the invitation to talk at the conference about the earlier diagnosis of cancer. How do you think that might develop for physician associates in the future? Do you think a similar model and a similar curriculum will be forthcoming? I would hope that um, given the emphasis that the long-term plan for the NHS has and the aspiration that by 2028 to 30, three quarters of cancer diagnosis will be at an early stage, then all of us as a professional workforce within primary care need to have an understanding of symptoms, investigations and pathways. And I think that it applies across the board. So certainly for physician associates, I would want to be part of supporting that process if I am able and if if I'm invited to. The other element within this is that um, GPs and physician associates aren't the only players in this ecosystem. And so we have our um, nurse practitioner colleagues, we have paramedic colleagues, we have clinical pharmacists, we have clinical um, physiotherapists, community physiotherapists who are coming out to work with us. So that as GPs, our responsibility is to support the training and learning aspects of all our colleagues, because we know when, if we reflect on our own journeys, when we started in primary care, even if you have been trained, there's still a steep learning curve. And so that multi-professional approach to what we do, recognising each other's strengths and also recognising those areas where we can usefully support each other feels like the way forward. If you were going to talk to physician associates about where to find good resources and good learning opportunities, where would you point people? 
There's one outstanding resource which everyone in primary care has free access to, and it's called Gateway C. This is an online portal resource that's been created in Manchester and supported by Health Education England. And within this resource, there are a number of elements. There are, first of all, a set of uh, modules which you can work through online, which contain video sections, question sections, reflective practice questions, and they also tie into CPD, certainly for GPs, and I suspect would be completely suitable for physician associates. They cover a very wide range of um, situations that you will come across within primary care. And some of the modules are to do with making better referrals, improving the quality of referral. Some of the modules are to do with specific cancer types, such as lung cancer, lower GI cancer, ovarian cancer. Some are to do with screening. So a recent module is around cervical screening. The latest module looks at one of the particularly challenging cancers to diagnose, which is sarcoma. And within it, there are interviews with GPs, with patients who have had a diagnosis, and with the consultants to talk about and reflect on what they would want us as primary care physicians to, to think about and to be aware of. Now, within Gateway C, there is also the one of the best guides to nice guide, nice referral guidance for two-week waits. And this is called Cancer Maps. They were developed by a colleague of mine in Loughborough called Ben Noble. And if you just put in Cancer Maps Gateway C into Google, you'll be taken there. And what Ben has brilliantly done is reduce 130 pages of nice guidance to one screen, which is visual. And the way to use that is to put in the age and sex of the patient together with the symptoms that they're experiencing as you see them. And then on the maps, you'll be drawn towards the particular cancer type and the investigations that NICE suggests that you do. Now, these cancer maps have won awards from NICE, so they're NICE approved. They've also won an innovation award from the Royal College of GPs. And for any of us that are in practice, no matter how experienced or inexperienced we are, it's a fantastic way of ensuring that you are thinking in the appropriate way. The latest version, which was launched just before Christmas last year, so that's 2021, also contains additional information about interpreting results. So interpreting chest x-rays, CA125s and fecal immunochemical testing. On the other section of the website, there are a series of webinars around hot topics. So, for example, around how to diagnose skin cancers, how to use the FIT test appropriately, how to safety net patients effectively. So if we were thinking about what is the which best buy primary care cancer education resource, I wouldn't look any further than that. Brilliant. Thanks, Pam. And I really like the way you phrased that. There's a question in my mind around physician associates as we're learning, um, as we gain experience of making diagnoses and, and investigations for cancer. 
inevitably through the law of averages every clinician will miss things and will not spot the signs of cancer in every patient what do you do when things go wrong like that this is such an important question and of course it goes beyond cancer um whenever our actions or inactions delay a diagnosis the feeling that you get is always something that that stays with you and i've had that happen at different stages of my career and i can remember all the way back to exactly those circumstances and what happened and what i should have done i think the first aspect here is that we're all very critical of ourselves and in a way that's how it should be we should hold ourselves to a high standard however we also work in systems that make it hard to always be consistent with what we know should be done and what we what can be done and the challenges arise firstly because there are time pressures we also see quite complicated patients and it's not unusual these days to have someone with three or four medical conditions who also has medication that could be causing those symptoms and i think when anything like that happens i learned from my trainer that it's good to talk one of the worst things that you can do as a professional is to feel so guilty that you bottle it up and that will damage you it'll damage you in the short term because you'll stress about it you might lose sleep sleep over it it'll damage you in the longer term because any learning that you could have from that it's really hard to take on board so my suggestion would be that if you have an existing relationship with a mentor or within the practice you have someone professionally that you can approach and discuss this with in confidence that's what i would do as early as possible the reason being that we all have been in this situation we all know what it feels like and so for those of us who are in those mentoring type positions it's part of our responsibility to support you and in these kinds of situations depending on what's actually happened then along with your covering professional you might want to contact the patient or apologize in some way to the patient if that's appropriate but the most important thing first is to share it with someone you trust because your judgment will be impaired by the guilt and the the heart thumping element that we all go through but you're not alone it's happened to me more than once i've felt guilty about it and i've shared it and i hope that whenever it happens i've learned from it and then shared that learning more widely that's all we can expect to do isn't it is to learn from when we get things wrong and i think so and um primary care is that sort of environment and because we deal all the time with uncertainty we reach levels at which we can handle uncertainty and we have investigations we have in general practice we have the key investigation which is time 
And so we can always review a patient again if they have symptoms. And typically, from a cancer perspective, a patient who has abdominal symptoms, which don't quite add up, but their initial set of investigations don't point you in one particular direction. Well, those patients, we can safety net. And one of the elements in COF and in the primary care networks, DES last year, was around developing safety netting systems for practices. The other thing is that if you have a patient where your spider sense is saying there's something not quite right here and you feel that there may be, your gut instinct tells you there may be something more here than I've recognised. First thing to do is to share it and to share it with with some, with another professional who will be able to reflect things back to you, ideally in, in a coaching sort of context. The other thing is that as we become more experienced, gut instinct actually becomes a proper scientifically validated tool to use. And there are a number of research studies, some from Denmark, some from England, which have shown that GP gut instinct, so if you have a patient that you've known over some time or a patient that never comes to the doctors, but all of a sudden three times they've come with the same symptoms, no one's quite sorted out, then that triggers things. And it means that you'll go a little bit further or ensure that that patient isn't fully discharged, but that you initiate a contact with them at a future date. And that contact may be by phone. Sometimes within the practice, we use text. And so I will text appropriate patients to ask, has everything settled down? If not, come and see me or make a phone call to discuss it further. Now, when we do this, lots of practices already have safety netting templates that have been set up. And I've worked over the last few years with Cancer Research UK around this. And we'll put as uh, some of the links after in the podcast notes, some hyperlinks to information on the Cancer Research website where you can learn more about safety netting. I would put it in terms of professionalism. And as a professional, um, part of what we do is recognising the, the relative failings of the systems that we operate currently and apply ourselves to working out how we could do better. And safety netting is one of those um, elements where the whole term safety netting in clinical, med in clinical general practice came about um, in the mid-80s with Roger Neighbour and his inner consultation book. But at that time, he didn't work using a computer. And EMIS and System One were very much in their infancy. Now, 25 years on, we're always using computers. And the because now the continuity within general practice relies on the continuity of clinical record, it becomes even more important that we're using the same language, using the right templates. I absolutely follow what you're saying there. I wonder if there's a role as well of the continuity that physician associates offer uh, in, by not rotating in improving patient safety. Oh, having definitely. that relationship between a PA and their GP supervisor. I think I think that's really important. And um, there's been a couple of papers published in the British Journal of General Practice highlighting uh, 
how significant continuity is. And continuity has been shown to reduce admissions for patients with dementia, for example. We also know that any systems, any health systems worldwide that emphasize continuity within primary care end up with far better outcomes for patients. And if, as a PA, you are there four days a week, five days a week, then that is an opportunity to offer continuity. And we can't, we can't overestimate how important that is to patients and their families, that they're talking with someone that's familiar to them and someone who's taken an interest in them and someone who they can relate to. One of the, I guess, difficulties of being a physician associate is the inability to order ionising radiation scans, which will hopefully change once GMC regulation comes in and, and will be then able to order x-rays, which are sometimes quite an important part of cancer diagnosis pathways, aren't they? Absolutely. And um, the, the x-ray that we use most frequently in primary care is chest x-ray. And chest x-rays are, are interesting because we do them for a variety of reasons. And if we have a patient uh, on the two-week wait guidance, so the two-week wait guidance suggests that anyone over 40 who has been a smoker and is fatigued, then we would be thinking about doing a chest x-ray. And the cancer maps highlight those situations. And so whilst as a physician associate, you may not initiate the ordering of a chest x-ray, you may well be on the receiving end when a patient contacts the practice again to find out what the results are, or when you see them for another condition and you see that the chest x-ray has been reported. Now, a really important thing to remember is that around a fifth, so 20% of chest x-rays in patients who eventually turn out to have lung cancer that first chest x-ray will be reported as normal. So I should repeat that. A fifth of first chest x-rays in patients with lung cancer will be normal. So it then becomes important to be guided by symptoms. And the symptoms around lung cancer, as well as the typical coughing up blood, persisting cough, even within a smoker, but a cough that's a different character, um, fatigue is another one. And for those patients that have had a full blood count as well, thrombocytosis, so raised platelets, is another clue. So if you have patients who have had a normal first chest x-ray, you see them three or four weeks later, but they're still not quite right. They're still fatigued. You've, you arrange a full blood count, you get slightly raised platelets, then you should be thinking this patient does need to have further investigation. In particular, that leads to either low-dose CT or you would put them onto a cancer pathway if, if the other elements add up. So that's chest x-rays, which um, you know certainly I would hope that um, PAs will be able to order in the near future. There are some other tests that are important to appreciate. And one test that has been around for a few years now, but is gradually changing is a test called the fecal immunochemical test or the FIT test. Now, we use FIT testing 
in a number of ways. And the bowel screening program sends out a fit kit to patients. Across the country, the age of the first fit kit is coming down. So it used to be 60, and now the age has been reduced to 56. And different areas around the country will be having men that have this done at 56, then 58, 60, and every two years until the age of 74. And a really important thing to realise with the screening fit test is that it's looking for a level of blood in the poo, which is around 120 micrograms. Because these are men and women that don't have any symptoms. One thing to watch for is that you can have a normal screening fit. But if somebody presents to you a couple of months after they've had their fit test with a change in bowel habit, possibly rectal bleeding, and when you feel their tummy, you wonder if there might be a mass and they look a little, they've been tired, they look a little bit pale. But they then tell you, oh, it can't be anything serious, doc, because I had the bowel screen. The trick is then disregard the bowel screen. You must. And what you must do at that stage is to do what's called a symptomatic fit test. And the symptomatic fit test looks for blood in poo, but at a much lower cutoff. So for the symptomatic blood test, it's 10 times lower. If you've got on the symptomatic test a fecal um, immunochemical test of more than 10 micrograms, then you need to go on a two-week wait. So we're gradually learning how to do that. And unfortunately, there are still areas where it hasn't been made clear the differences between screening and symptomatic fit. Now, recently, we've gone one stage further and it's been specified that all patients who go on a two-week wait pathway should have a fit test done. And this is being brought in around the country. And you might ask, well, why should there be a fit test when you've already decided that a patient is going on the two-week wait? And the answer is that depending on how positive the fit test is, secondary care can decide whether they go straight to a colonoscopy or whether they need to be evaluated by a consultant, or whether they go straight to a CT colonogram. So secondary care are using the FIT test as a filtering tool to decide the urgency with which to deal with patients. Now, this becomes extra important because after lockdown, the lower GI pathway is one of the most challenged. And so they have to try and prioritise people who perhaps have got um, cancers which are more advanced so they can intervene quickly before you reach a situation where perhaps they might obstruct. So that's the, the, the FIT test. The final test that I'll talk about now is the CA125 test that we do if we suspect ovarian cancer. And I think I, I'm going to hear, James, give you um, a particular way of thinking that I use and I've developed over the years. And the thing to remember is that no woman over the age of 50 ever gets irritable bowel symptoms. And I'll repeat that. Any woman over 50 who develops symptoms of IBS 
has got ovarian cancer until otherwise proved. And I say that because ovarian cancer can be one of the harder cancers to pick up. And it's important to recognize that it can present with fatigue, it can present with abdominal swelling, it can present with symptoms of irritable bowel. So it's interpreted as being a kind of bloating. And we all try to understand and normalize our symptoms, but sometimes the language doesn't quite tell you what's going on really. And it's important if a woman presents in those circumstances to have, could it be ovarian cancer in your head? Because then what you would do is you would arrange for that woman to have a CA125 blood test within the next week or two weeks. And that will come back and give you information. Now, the CA125 isn't the be-all and end-all because the next investigation is ultrasound. And normally you would use something like a transvaginal ultrasound unless somebody has ascites and then an abdominal ultrasound would work. So that's really important to, to be aware of. And one final tip is that if a woman does have a raised one CA125, but a normal ultrasound scan, and the CA125 isn't massive, it's the cutoff on the normal range is 35. Let's say it's a CA125 of 40 or 50. So not ever so high. But if you experience that and the ultrasound scan comes back normal, then consider other abdominal organs and the chest. The reason being that some research published last year shows that the CA125 actually can be raised in pancreatic cancer, in hepatic cancers, and also in lung cancers. So it's an indication not to stop looking, but perhaps to widen your field of search. Because people will really thank, my patients really thank me for having thought about this, because often it's an unspoken fear for them. And if you say, you know, I've examined you, I am concerned that it could be something more serious, and then pause, giving the patient a bit of time to think, well, what? And then you can say, well, was there anything serious that you thought might be going on? See if they use the C word first. Often, if you use the word and say, well, I'm going to check to see whether it could be something more serious, such as a cancer. There's often a sigh of relief because that's already gone through people's minds. And if you say it first, you're on the front foot and you can then explore what that might mean and whether they have thought that it could be that. And that then means that you're engaging far better. And then the next step, when you review the patient after investigations, you have a different sort of relationship because the patient knows that you're really seeking to make sure that there isn't anything serious. And if it is something serious, then you're going to get them into the right pathway quickly. I got caught out by a patient this week using the C word as a phrase, to which they were referring to covid and I interpreted that they were meaning cancer and it caused us a little bit of confusion. They of really didn't want to get COVID and I was talking to them about, I might be screening you for cancer. Yeah. And I must say, I've got um, a webinar that I do where 
I call them cancer, the, the other big C. And the data suggests in quite a frightening way that there are tens of thousands of cancer diagnoses that should have been made during that period, but where patients themselves didn't present or that um, when we asked patients to go for investigations, they were too frightened of catching COVID to go for the tests. And we're seeing that increasingly in the data that patients are being detected with later stage cancer, where the treatment options are very different to earlier stage cancer. There was something I was reading the other day about the uptake of cervical screening um, and how that's been affected during the pandemic. If I think back a few years, when a famous celebrity makes a diagnosis of cervical cancer and publicizes it, there's often a rush uh, to go in and get your smear tests. Or if there's a celebrity talking about prostate cancer on the news, I can tell something's been on the TV the night before because then I, in my inbox in general practice is a whole bunch of men requesting a PSA test. National screening programs are very important, aren't they? And something that PAs can be involved with. Absolutely. And um, you're right about cervical screening. The latest data, which goes back to March last year, shows that there's been a 2 to 3% drop in cervical screening. And I think all of us as professionals have a responsibility to promote screening, especially when it's in such um, an effective programme as the cervical screening. So we may all be aware that cervical screening starts at the age of 25 and finishes at the age of 64. And we have national call and recall systems within practice. We also have a system where after two declined invitations, the practice itself will send a reminder out to the ladies. Now, the when we think about cervical screening in the younger age groups, there's been a greater drop-off. And in part, it's almost a success story because of the human papillomavirus vaccine. And so a group of women are coming through who had um, HPV immunization when they were younger. But then those women who are 27, 28 didn't have that. So it's important they still go on to have screening. So if on your screen you get the flashing alert coming up in the corner that someone's delayed or late for their cervical screen, please think about reminding them or just asking them. And the reason why this matters is that through lockdown, we have had the whole screening programs were at one point completely switched off. Then they were gradually introduced. And then with a the second lockdown, they were closed down again. So we have a group of women that haven't been screened, but should have been. And anything that we can do to encourage those women to come forward is to be explored. So in my area, we're running weekend clinics and evening clinics to try and pick up those ladies to give them flexibility of attendance. The other um, innovation that we're using is a way of um, sending them a video text, so a link to a, a video from the doctor or nurse from the practice promoting cervical screening. There is a really exciting development that will happen within the next couple of years, which is that women are able to do what's called self-sampling. So they're able to undertake, using a swab, an HPV examination. And effectively, you can um, 
do a vaginal swab looking for HPV. And that will give you results that are equivalent to detecting HPV on a smear. Now, that's been tested in London and has been very successful, particularly in older women. And I'm hoping that that will become an option going forward. The other screening programs are breast and also um, lower GI or bowel screening programs. And the bowel screening starts now at 56. There's a very simple one-off test that men and women can do. It's repeated every two years until the age of 74. Importantly, with both breast and bowel, although the programme stops inviting them at the end, patients themselves only have to ring up and they can have another test. So I've got ladies who have completed their mammography programme, but still want to go on and have mammograms every three years. And that's fine. They ring up the mammography programme. Or if you have a well 76-year-old, they might want to continue having the fit test. And all they do is ring the number and the programs will send it out. They don't publicise that, but they should. Thank you. That's really interesting. And I'm sure will be of interest to lots of people who've been listening to that. There's lots of things that I've learned from listening to you. If people have been listening and have got questions or thoughts, ideas, where should they go to find answers and find out more about what we've been talking about? Are you happy for them to get in contact with you? Absolutely. I'd encourage it. Um, Because I'm on sabbatical, I've got the headspace and the time. And um, the more people that um, reach out, the the better, because then as I work with PAs as a a group, it then allows me to, you know, sort of speak with with the right authenticity. But I'll share with you the, um, the, the links to Gateway C and some other information. Perfect. Thank you. And I'll leave your contact details in the show notes along with the resources that we spoke about earlier so people are able to find them there. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you, James. And thanks to you for listening as well. I hope you did find that really interesting and we'll check out the resources that we leave in the show notes. If you've got an idea for a future episode of the Physician Associate Podcast, I'd love to have you on the show. Please get in contact. We're on social media at PA Podcast UK. And I hope you'll join me again for the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Physician Associate Podcast.